Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So we're coming to our, the, the close of our not-so-minor minor prophet series, Malachi. And before we jump in, let me just tell you that over the summer, we're going to be doing something uh, a little bit different in every site. Every, uh, every location is going to do a little bit of something different, uh, whatever, we, whatever we choose. So what we're going to do here is we're going to do six, uh, a six-week um, series that looks at the blessings and benefits of what it means to be a child of God. And so we're going to look a little bit more thematically at the doctrine of adoption and all of the richness that comes with that doctrine that we sometimes kind of overlook. We don't spend a a whole lot of time with that. And so that's what we have queued up for uh, starting next week. And so with that, let's just jump in uh, to uh, this week's work in Malachi. One of the things that I want to begin with is... Uh, something that you guys have hopefully noticed, seen uh, me doing, and that is working hard to impress upon you the importance of this year for our church here in New Paltz. We are a mission church, and in one sense, every church is, of course, a mission church. But for us, that's our sole purpose. We're not providing financial support to other missionaries or anything of that nature. Uh, That's the church as a whole doing that, and they're helping us to do our work here and in Beacon and in Port Jervis. And so our mission is to be reaching out uh, to those here in New Paltz. And that means that we must have an ever-increasing appreciation and valuing of evangelism. Or to put it a little bit differently in a way that you probably have heard before, that we should have an ever-increasing heart for the lost. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's actually a struggle. I'm guilty of the charges that Haggai leveled against God's people just a couple weeks ago when we looked at that, being caught up in my own world and my own obligations So what I want to do is pause here for a moment and pose the question to you. Do you, in fact, have a heart for the lost? And I want you to let that steep. Don't rush into that. Don't rush into an answer for that. Take a moment to search your heart about the status of your heart for the lost. Do you have that heart? Do I? Is a question I ask a lot. Your actions support an answer of yes. Do uh, the things we do in a typical week evidence a heart for the lost? If the answer is no, or if the answer is something you're struggling with, then I might suggest that you consider what lies at the very heart of that question. And that's this, that one must first be found in order to have a heart for the lost. Maybe an oversimplification, but a truth. 
if each one of us understands, and of course to varying degrees, but if each one of us understands the richness of the gift of the gospel, then we are all experientially familiar with what, what, what it was to be lost. We know the desperation and the hopelessness that came with that state. Maybe we've forgotten and we need to be reminded. That's one thing, but if we've never known it, then we cannot count ourselves among the found and we too are still lost. And that's a serious thing to consider. Malachi is a, a book that reminds us that we too were once lost and we all have the propensity to drift away from God, to forget or diminish the majesty of the gift of the gospel. And Malachi, like all of Scripture, has many, many rich verses in it. But at the center, at the core of this book, the central theme is found in chapter 3. It was our, our, our assurance of forgiveness. It's right here. Malachi 3, 6, and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The question they ask afterwards, we'll deal with in a minute. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we do each week for your word. We pray for your blessing on that word and our time in it. Be with us now as we consider your word. May it grow us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So as we look at this word, there's two things that I want to draw your attention to. And the first one is that God declares a great and profound truth about himself. He doesn't change. God does not change. Theologians refer to this as God's immutability, his unchanging nature, and Scripture attests to this in many, many places. It's not just here. Let me give them to you. Numbers 23, for example, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and he will, will, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? He is unchanging, so he will fulfill what he says, because he doesn't change his mind. Or 1 Samuel 15, and also the glory of Israel, which is a reference to God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Humanity has regret, because they make decisions and change their mind and feel bad about them. And God doesn't do that. He's unchanging. Psalm 102 says this, Of old you lay the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So this speaks to his eternality. But he is the same, unchanging in his eternal state. 
Isaiah 46 says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Think about that for a moment, even before we read the last part. He has to accomplish his purpose from the beginning to the end. How do you do that if you're ever changing? He is unchanging in his nature. <clears throat> Hebrews 6 says this in the New Testament. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Or Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or James Every good gift and every perfect gift is from heaven, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is unchanging. He does not change. He is immutable. In fact, in Exodus 3, 14, we're given God's name. Moses gets, I am the holy covenantal name of God. That that very name speaks of his eternality, but it also speaks of his unchanging nature. His very name uh, echoes this idea, conveys the idea of his eternal and unchanging nature. And so this is a comfort that we want to take. There, there certainly is the, uh, the sense that this means that God doesn't change with the times, which was sometimes we would say... Somehow he has now relaxed his standards with regard to worship or uh, morality or anything else. But what's even more comforting than this is the fact that God's unchanging nature provides us with a certainty that he is always for us. If you belong to God, if you are a born-again believer, then you belong to him and he is for you. Now, you and I, we tend to wander at times. Maybe we wander for really, really long periods of time. But we're always able to return to him, which brings us to the next point in these verses. The second point has to do with this call to return. And there's two parts to it. The first part is this. God says he's telling them that they, we, have a rather long-standing History, a, a most predictable of track records for disobedience. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Yet despite this truth, God, in his unchanging nature, continues to call his sheep back to him. Return to me, he says. Why? Because God, in his unchanging nature, loves us. He loves us before we even existed. In fact, this is how the book of Malachi opens up. It opens up with this idea. This is what we read in the opening verses. The, the very first verses are the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Interestingly enough, Malachi's name means my messenger, and we're going to see some word play with that later. But for now, let's look at what the rest of these opening verses say. Remember, the theme is love. Here's what God says. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? 
And I want to just pause for a second and ask you if that might remind you of something. Now, you've heard it in the New Testament, but that's not what I mean. When I read this, I think, that sounds like an immature child griping to a parent, does it not? I have loved you. You say, well, how have you loved me? Because you've not loved me the way I want you to love me. You've not given me what I want when I want it. It sounds like a grumbling child. How have you loved me? And God's answer is this. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. He goes on from there to describe how it is that, that God will restore his name. I've laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, and that's another name for Esau, if Edom says, we, shall, uh, we are shattered but will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear them down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes will see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Here's what we're after, though. Love. Now, Paul, as I said before, quotes these verses about Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated in Romans chapter 9. And oftentimes we turn to those verses to assert God's sovereign election, and rightly so. But notice the context in which Malachi is speaking and how he opens the book. Again, love. Our unchanging God sets his love upon his people before they even exist. Jacob is loved and Esau is hated, not because of anything they did, but because God chose Jacob to love and not Esau. John tells us in 1 John 4 that we love because he first loved us. That is to say that we love others, but also we love God because God first loved us. The unchanging nature of God for us as his children is that he loves us unconditionally because he has determined to do so and he does not change. Which means that you and I can always return to the Lord because we can take comfort in his unchanging nature and his sovereign eternal love for us, his children. God's unchanging nature is a great comfort for us. Imagine if God changed all the time. And sometimes we imagine God that way. Well, I don't know. Maybe God's mad at me. Anybody ever ask that question? But Scripture says he's unchanging. This is great assurance for us because the unchanging nature of God says, if you are trusting in the shed blood of Christ, you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and that means that God is no longer angry at you. He's exerted his wrath against sin already in Christ on the cross. And he doesn't change. So that truth that's declared in the word of God is true today because he doesn't change. There's an, a, a comfort that I want you to see in that. God is not fickle and we don't have to worry about 
whether he's going to change or not. And, and I want us to see that and take great comfort in that. And so God says, return to me. In fact, Malachi tells us that when the Lord calls us to return to him, he promises something. Let's see what it says here. He says, from the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. God promises that if you return to him, he will return to you. And by the way, this promise is offered at the very beginning of the book of Zechariah as well. Our call to worship last week and our call to worship this week from James 4 is similar to that. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Return to God and he'll return to you. And let's not forget something really important here. Zechariah, Malachi, and for that matter, James, none of those guys are writing to unbelievers. In fact, none of Scripture is addressed to unbelievers. The unbelievers are often addressed in Scripture. They are rarely the direct audience, and even then, it concerns only judgment and not repentance. And maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute, we just did a series where we looked at Nineveh. And Nineveh was the enemy, and they were called to repent, and they did. And we might think of that as an exception, but here's the thing. Nineveh was later destroyed completely. And you know what there wasn't any of? No remnant. Nothing left. For the people of God, there will always be a remnant, which is an evidence that God continues to establish his people unconditionally. But the enemies of God are wiped away and are no more. And here's the point of all this. It's to see that only those who are already believers are capable of drawing near to God. And the minor prophets and James say that God will return to you or draw near to you. It's not unlike us that somehow God has left. God is always near. We are never lost to him, as it were, though we are certainly known for losing our own way. At times, he might create a separation as a way of disciplining us, but he will never leave us. He will never forsake us, which too is another promise that's echoed throughout Scripture. And so this comprises the heart of the book the unchanging nature of God who calls his people to return to him because he loves them and has determined to do so. With that in mind, let's look at some of the themes that sort of surround this call of repentance based on God's unchanging love. And we can begin with a, a little bit of an outline as I like to give you. So we looked at one through five, and that's God's sovereign love for his people and what remains in chapter 1 all the way to the middle of chapter two, 2 is Malachi, God through Malachi, dealing with the sins of the priests in particular, then briefly the sins of the people, and then the second half of the book, there's this forward-looking idea, the day of the Lord. And so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through them kind of quickly. 
As I said, it begins by addressing the sins of the priests, and this takes up all of chapter 1 and part of 2. Remember, we're beginning with God's sovereign, eternal love for his people, but then God asks this question. This is what happens in verse 6. God asks this question. Let me just put 6 and 7 in front of you. A son honors his father, and a servant is master. If then, if then I am father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. That is to say that they despise the character or the essence or the nature of God. <clears throat> but you say, how have we despised your name? And that kind of a literary tool that Malachi uses a lot. This, you, know, you say, but, it, but you say this and I say this. God is really kind of putting them on the spot with a sort of diatribe. God is simply asking the priests a question. He's drawing out their guilt. Where's my honor as father? Where's my fear as master? He's accusing the priests of despising his name, as we said. And we want to take note of that. What does it mean? How have they despised his name? That's the question they ask. But you say, how have we despised your name? And he answers, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Here's what it says after that. Let me just read it to you. It says this. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. You see what he's saying here. You've gotten comfortable giving the, the pittance, the last, the worst of what's left, or not the first fruits. The things that you can't do anything else with. You can't do anything with the blind or sick or lame animals. So you sacrifice them. And you try to feel good about that. Imagine giving that gift to a person of importance like a governor. Not going to fly. That's what God's saying. All the more so with me. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you. With such a gift from your hand, will he show you favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? On that, there, uh, they were one, oh, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that is, to the temple. You might not kindle fire, fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. 
Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has, made, has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. In other words, cursed is the one who has the best in the flock and then takes a blemished sheep instead and sacrifices that. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And so here's the accusation. God is saying, I have all the evidence. Here's what you've done. And of course, they know it, so they're quiet. But Malachi, uh, we read that uh, directed by God, gives an example of what a good priest looks like. He looks to Levi. And we read, starting in verse uh, chapter 2, just a few verses here to get a sense of this. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Right? Take it to heart, what I'm saying. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces and the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. Listen to how he describes what a good priest looks like. He feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction, or the law, was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. You have turned aside from this way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. And so he accuses them, and then he says, here's what it's supposed to look like, but you're doing the opposite. This is how he addresses the sins of the priests. And then Malachi deals with the sins of of the people. I just read you two, one through nine, sorry. Here's the sins of the people. Malachi addresses them next. And what he's doing here is something that is not exactly guilty for the people and not for the priests. It's a little bit of both. But what the priests teach kind of spreads down and the people have a degree of guilt for that. These verses take up the rest of chapter two, but it's really only seven verses, but they are a striking and convicting seven verses. God is addressing the sin of divorce. And while he's shifted from the priests, as I said to the people, it's quite reasonable to assume that the priests were also guilty of practicing unbiblical divorce. And this is not sort of a random selection of sins. Let me just talk about divorce randomly but specific to Malachi's charge against God's people and priests, namely his focus on the dangers of mixed marriages. For many of us, we know that marriage can be challenging. It's even challenging when both partners believe the same things, but when they don't, 
becomes a whole lot more challenging, does it not? Many have married someone they loved who wasn't a believer in the hopes that their example would be blessed by God and God would convert the unbeliever. But more often, the believer is pulled down to an increasing dismissal of their Christian convictions in keeping with their unbelieving spouse's convictions. More often, they're drawn away. In short, mixed marriages normally result in compromised faith. Of course, it is true, as we say, God does hate divorce. Absolutely, he does. But he hates all sin. And divorce is a direct offense to God's first institution, which is marriage. Something we find both at the beginning and the end of Scripture. When Malachi talks here in these verses, he's addressing the faithlessness of God's people evidenced in divorce. Divorce was a compromise with those of foreign nations. Here's what we read, and it's on the board downstairs, these opening verses. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. When you marry an unbeliever, when you marry someone from another nation in this time in Israel's history, one who has a different God, you are compromising when you do that. Divorce is, uh, a mix of marriage can be compromising, but divorce is also something that is inherently self-destructive. In fact, he describes it here as an act of violence. It reads this, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, and by the way, that literally says, who, who hates his wife and divorces her, says the Lord. The God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Divorce is a, is a, is a serious thing, and we want to acknowledge that. It's the institution that God begins with, and so it, it has a certain dynamic here. But the, the Jews in, in, in Malachi's day were divorcing their wives and marrying younger um, gir, uh, women from other nations. So there's all kinds of compromise going on in that. These verses, just these seven verses, address the issue of faithlessness among God's people, focusing on divorce, but in truth, any form of disobedience results in these things, results in compromise and self-destruction. When we disobey God, we're going to get that no matter how we look at that. Divorce is by no means an exception. So we have the sins of the priests, we have the sins of the people, and then we have the day of the Lord, and that or comprises the rest of um, the book, chapters 3 and 4. The day of the Lord's a theme that we see throughout the prophets, uh, in the minor prophets as well. And it's an event to be feared. And Malachi opens up chapter 3 by promising that with that day will come judgment. 
So it's something to be feared. Here's what the verses say, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former days. And then we read this. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerer, against the adulterer, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so this day of the Lord's shift that we look at in the second half begins with this declaration of coming judgment. They're frightening words. But here's the thing that I want you to remember. They're frightening words, but they come right before the thing that we began with. That's chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. What does 6 and 7 say? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, and notice that, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. O children of Jacob are not consumed. Because I don't change and I love you, so you will not be judged. You'll be disciplined, but not judged. And here is the call, return to me and I will return to you. Our unchanging God never brings judgment against his people without a call to repentance. Now let's just... Uh, look briefly again at these, uh, these verses that we just read, 1 through 3, and let me just draw your attention to something interesting. They begin with the words, Behold, I send my messenger. Now, you might remember that Malachi's name means messenger, and I said there would be some wordplay later on. Well, here it is. Who is this messenger? Well, it's not Malachi. And if it's not Malachi, who then is it? Well, when we look at these verses, we notice something that we've seen before, particularly in Zechariah, namely that there seems to be some prophetic acknowledgement of both the first and second comings of Jesus. It's just an interesting thing to note. The prophets are looking forward to both in some ways, and we find ourselves in between. So we're looking back at Christ coming, first coming in humility and forward to his coming in glory. And so that is an, it's sort of an interesting way to, to begin to shape what we see here. We have both of these. And there's reason to believe that, that this verse, these verses point to Jesus' second coming because we see this swift and absolute judgment against everyone which we don't necessarily see. When Jesus comes the first time, he comes in humility and grace. When he comes again, he will come to judge the living and the dead. 
And so we might ask and should ask, well, where then do we see the first coming? And it comes after God challenges his people to tithe faithfully, which we see later on, testing him to see if he'll not bless them. And after further rebukes regarding their continued faithlessness. But here's the thing I want you to get. The final words of the book, the final words of the Old Testament, the final words of God before the incarnation, that is the word made flesh, are these words in the short chapter, that is chapter 4. It's only six verses in total. i read you the five verses. It's for, for behold, excuse me, six verses. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will, will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor bush. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall shine with healing in his wings, shall go out leaping like calves from the soul, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Which sounds a lot like it could potentially be second coming again. But then we read this in verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded in a, a, at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And that is a, uh, a worship term. That, the, that word for destruction is a term that we see in the Old Testament a lot for something that is dedicated to destruction. It's, or, so it's worship. It's an act of worship to utterly destroy something. So where do we see the first coming? Well, we see it in the promise of Elijah, which Jesus himself testifies to in the Gospels. For example, we read in Matthew, Jesus says these words, truly I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he, that is John, is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so this idea of sending Elijah that Malachi tells about, Jesus turns to and says, that's John. And so to sum it up, we have the judgments against the people, but we have the love of God, the call to return to him and his unchanging nature, and the promise of the Messiah's coming. But what do we do with it all? Well, let's do some reflection. Oh, let's not do that. That's not yet. No reflections? Oh, Tyler. He's so good, but when, it's, when he doesn't do it, you're like, oh, no. So I just have a, a couple of questions to think about, and that's this. How, what does it mean, firstly, to have a heart for the lost? I want to remind us of that. I want us to think a little bit about that. And what does it mean to return to the Lord? So just take a second to think a little bit about what, that, what does that look like? Maybe returning to the Lord, hopefully returning to the Lord is something that you do often. 
right? We should be regularly confessing our sins, regularly returning to the Lord. What does it look like to you? Maybe you need to do that right now. Maybe there's a sense in which the Spirit's working in you and you need to return to the Lord right now. Well, you know what? We've got prayer for that right over there. And we encourage you to to partake in that and pray uh, with one another that you would uh, come before the Lord and confess your sins and return to him. But here's the, the heart of the question that I wanted to ask, and that's this. What does it look like to return to the Lord? It may look differently for all of us, but what clues can we take from these, these chapters here and these final words uh, to help us get a little bit of a sense of what that looks like? And here's what I would say to you. Malachi tells us to remember the law of Moses. And so remember what I said before. He's looking forward to Jesus' first and second coming, as all the prophets did, as all the Old Testament did. But we stand in the middle. And so we would look back at Moses' law and back at Jesus' first coming. Now, here's why that's significant. When the law comes through Moses, that is the, the ten words, they come from the mountain. They come from the mountaintop, right? They go up to the mountain, they receive the law, the ten words. What happens when Jesus comes and he goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration? What does God say to, to, uh, to the disciples who are with him? This is my son. Listen to him, right? Why? Because he is the word incarnate. In other words, what Moses gives in the written law finds incarnational fulfillment in the person of Christ. And so we look to the law to practice the law in obedience of that. That's what it means to return to God, right? Bear fruit, John says, in keeping with your repentance. To return to the Lord is to repent. And bearing fruit means, well, now I, how do I apply the law of God so that I can live right for God? If you love me, Jesus says, you do what? You keep my commandments. And the commandments are there. The commandments are not an Old Testament thing that are irrelevant. They are perfectly relevant. Paul speaks of them in his letters Keeping the law of God still matters, and it's how we pre please God. And so we want to we look back to Moses, look back to Christ and his fulfillment of that, living with the indwelling spirit and looking forward to the second coming. And that's what it looks like to return to God. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to come to the table because coming to the table is part of what it means to return to God. If you're in a state where you're wrestling and feel the need to return to God, you're confessing your sins, then you come to the table. If you're not, then I encourage you to let the elements pass and show reverence uh, to the table that is due to it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word as we often say, your word that we've heard preached through, through the, the printed word that is inscripturated. And now we come to the visible word, the table. We see before us a picture of the gospel of your death on our behalf to forgive us of our sins.
We thank you for this table, and we pray, Lord, that you would be with us now as we, as we come before it. We ask now by your spirit that you would take this cup and this bread and you would set them apart for a holy purpose that they might become to our faith your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.